Hey everybody, today's podcast is with Ariana Nason, a uh, Native American activist here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We had a pretty wide, wide-ranging conversation, uh, which talked a lot about her experience and more, uh, yeah, her experience growing up in Minnesota and the sort of racism and, and bigotry she experienced on a daily basis. Uh, also, we talked about our shared, lo- our shared love of LaCroix. We also talked about her day job, which involves uh, advocacy for uh, trafficked uh, Native American women, both uh, around Minnesota and along the tar sands and pipelines and ports and things. Per usual, it was a great conversation, uh, really informative, and if you just are looking to learn something about uh, what's happening in Native, Amer- Native American communities in Minneapolis, this is a great place to start. And uh, towards the end of the podcast, she mentions some suggestions about uh, places on the web and other books you can read to just learn more and inform yourself. As I was, because most of the stuff that she mentioned I had some knowledge about, but yeah, it was just great to expand my thinking. And, um, you know, I think a lot about the Latino community and I think a lot about indigenous communities in Latin America, um, but certainly not as much reflecting on the Native American community in the United States. So I really appreciate Ariana for um, just sort of elevating that in my mind at least. And I hope you all have the same kind of experience. All right, have a good day. Bye. So I never, I never know what look, look, how do you say that, Lacroix? Lacroix. I didn't know what that was until I moved here. Um, uh, it's, it's amazing. Super white thing. It's a think. very white thing. It's a very white thing. It's a specifically a white female thing. Oh, it totally is. I like to joke that you know I'm half white because of one, my love of coffee, and two, my love of Lacroix. That's yeah. where it carries over. I love that's coffee. So I guess I'm still half Mexican. Hey. <laughs> no, I have. Really, it's actually really good. I love it. I love it. And I used to, like, when I was younger, I drank a lot of soda and just to yeah. kind of, like, absolutely sip. So I like the fizzy water. It stays hydrated and just is more interesting than tap water. I mean, I drink a crap ton of water. I don't really drink anything but water, but this is, like, the one thing I vary from is, and it's so tasty. Yeah. Yeah, just all the empty calories and liquids and then not having that. No, just it's good. Convenient and just nice. a little bit. Just a little bit. I just want a fizzy water keg at my house. That's all I want. <laughs> just pump that all day. Yeah. Yeah, change the flavor a little bit once that? in a while. Um, I bet they do. I bet they do. I actually found another type of fizzy water that they sell at the Lake Street Cub, and, like, uh-huh. that's it. But uh, it's called Polar Polar Bear or Polar Water or something like that. It's over in, like, the $1 aisle on the Lake Street Cub. Huh. And they have really good flavors. They have a blueberry vanilla one, and blueberry it's vanilla. super good. <laughs> There's a pol- there's a polar beer in uh, Venezuela. Nice. And in Venezuela, there's smaller bottles and it's cheaper than water. <laughs> so maybe they they turned it over here. I don't know. Just why? Suspicious company. <laughs> I like it. it was like, but nobody really. It's, it's polar. I'm like, no one can say that easily, mm. right? Like, polar. Polar. Anyway, so who are you and where are we, por favor? Yeah, uh, my name is Ariana Nason. I am from the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior, Chippewa. I prefer to say Ojibwe or Anishinaabe, though. Chippewa is the French version of the name of my people. Chippewa is the French... <laughs> Wait for that to settle. Um, Chippewa is the French version of the name of my people, so I'm trying very hard to decolonize the way my people talk about yourselves. Sure. Um, but unfortunately... So you were raised at St. Chippewa? Uh, well, on paperwork, that's what it says. It says American Indian in Chippewa. I'm like, well, I'm not American and I'm not Indian. Uh-huh. I am Native, I am Indigenous, or I am Anishinaabe or Ojibwa, and which is kind of where Chippewa comes from, okay. Ojibwa, Chippewa. Uh, yeah, so that's where I'm from originally. Uh, we are currently in the middle of the cultural corridor in Minneapolis. We are at my office at the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center where I work in the Oshkanishikwe program as a safe harbors worker. And why is it called the cultural corridor? Because uh, we have a little bit of everything under the sun over here. You, like describe it to people that are from here. Yeah, yeah. Historically, um, I'd say this is probably what an eight block radius in general of kind of what's considered the cultural corridor. And historically, it's been the center for uh, Native Americans for urban relocation. And then as time went on, other communities of color have been uh, have chosen to move in or have been moved in through other government relocation programs. There's housing projects near here. It's been a very interesting existence as Native folks in this area, as experiencing relocation to urban areas as part of the experience of colonialism, but mm-hmm. also to have other community, communities of color move into the area where we see 
um, a movement in solidarity and neighbors right. in solidarity, but there's still this element of they're part of our colonial experience. And so it's kind of this mm. weird coexistence of we, we love our brown and black folks near and around us, but there's also kind of this tension because mm. it's still part of our colonized experience. So intersected, but still in conflict. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, and you, and visually it's really clear when you drive through Franklin in this area, you see different types of, of uh, restaurants and, and grocery stores and things. Yep, yep. So Franklin, we are located um, kind of in the little niche corner of Franklin and Bloomington Avenue in South Minneapolis, right off a, right off a couple different highways. Um, you see indigenous art, right? When you right. kind of turn down Bloomington and Franklin to turn down to our office, uh, you see what is actually the largest indigenous mural in in ever outdoor mural murals on the side of the American Indian Center, the first American Indian Center, which mm -hmm. is where the American Indian movement started. Right. Clyde Belcourt, um, Dennis Banks, uh, all of them folks. John Trudell was over here for a long time. Rest in peace, brother. And so uh, the mural over there, it's it's massive and it's beautiful. And I highly recommend folks Google it or check it out. It's done by two artists named Greg Deal and Votan, V-O-T-A-N. And that was a project that was completed a little less than a year ago, but um, it looks super cool. Can you say the name again just so people can yep. kind of Google it? Greg Deal, G-R-E-G-G, -G, two Gs, Deal, <laughs> D-E-A-L, and he is currently based in Denver. And Votan, V-O-T-A-N, and I think Votan is back in Minneapolis. He kind of, he has a lot of community connections here, but he's been in L.A. Um, I think he was in Austin for a while, somewhere out east, but he's everywhere. I'll try to yeah. link to it when I post this eventually. Awesome. Make yeah, sure those, those are two great indigenous artists that have done a lot of work around here. So uh, tell me more about uh, urban relocation for your community. Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, as much as, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell my personal story more so. Okay. Um, so my, my family, uh, I am half indigenous and half white. Uh, my mother's parents were both immigrants and my immigrants father, from where? Uh, my grandpa is from Denmark and mm -hmm. my grandma is from Poland. And so mom is first generation here and she was raised in Moose Lake, Minnesota. What, what is Moose Lake? Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Okay. It honestly right. doesn't matter. <laughs> right. It's just the easiest name to say in the most Minnesotan way. You got the Moose Lake, Minnesota on your way up to Duluth, on your way to Cloquet, about halfway there. I imagine a fairly small city. It's very small. Yeah. It's a very, very small town on your way up to Duluth, which is... The second biggest If It's a, it's a metro area, whatever. It, it, yeah. it exists up there. Um, so my dad... My... Ah, excuse me. Uh, from what I know about my grandparents, and again, this is very, very limited knowledge because they don't, they never shared with me any information about their lives up mm. until both of them were about 15, 16 years old. And mm. so nobody in my family really knows their story. So we all just have assumed at this point that they were boarding school kids. Okay. And then my grandma had her first child at 15 and that's kind of when as far as we all know that's when she started existing in herself that's, her, that's where her narrative started yep yep and then mm -hmm. my grandpa passed away and i was really young so i only know his stories through my aunts and uncles and sure. cousins uh so my grandma had her first child when she was 15 and then she's there's a total of seven kids now and uh, my grandpa had a child from a second marriage uh, way later on. I'll get to that in a moment. But, um, yeah, so my grandma was actually volunteered to be part of the Indian Relocation Act in the early 70s, uh, which was done as a form of a continued genocide. Uh, there were too many natives, or as they put it, too many Indians gathered in one spot at one time. And too much change was happening around the civil rights movement at kind of at the tail end of that and the government got scared and I don't I'm not as well versed in the particular legal reasons why they were relocated uh, but there was the relocation act that happened so my grandma uh, volunteered her and her family to go but it was out of a move of desperation mm -hmm. uh, my grandma my grandpa was incredibly abusive to my grandma and mm -hmm. to all of the kids and so my grandma saw it as a way out 
Right. So she was relocated, of all places, to Compton, California. Oh, really? Which is where my dad spent the majority of his life. So my dad grew up as a native person in Compton. Are there a lot of native folks there in Compton? There are a lot of native folks in Compton because of this. I grew up in L.A., and that's just not part of the narrative of our own city. Yeah, well, we assimilated. Yeah. We assimilated in because it was safer for us to be anything but native. Right. And so my I dad... I guess you could, you could pass as some other ethnic group in Los I, Angeles somewhere. Yeah, if you see a photo of me ever, I am very uh, <laughs> ethnically ambiguous. Right. And my dad, even more so, my grandma, um, she had the high cheekbones, but Native folks get mistaken for various ethnicities all the time. So there's it's easy to blend in. So my dad is culturally Latino, but historically (laughs) Native. And it was a very strange upbringing when he came back to Minnesota. Uh, But when my dad was younger, he was, I think he was still a baby when he was moved out to Compton. And my grandpa actually tried to get his crap together, tried to get his shit together, and went out and followed my grandma. They got back together, was super abusive, super abusive again. Grandma left him. And then my dad and his siblings kept on getting into legal trouble. And so then my grandma upholed the whole family, moved them back to the reservation in Minnesota, which is where they've been since, I would say, 19... I'd say... I don't know for sure actually when they moved back here probably 1975 76 okay. yeah but, and when you say reservation what does that mean uh reservation so there are chunks of land that the government has uh seceded back to indigenous folks across the country and that's for the most part where most of us live we live in urban hubs near our reservations or we live on the reservation there's not much of an in-between land but reservations our sovereign states, mm-hmm. uh, we have we our state law does not apply to try or to reservations. We kind of opt in, opt out of certain things. Uh, federal law does apply, but it makes um, any any crimes that happen on reservations are really really tricky, and a lot of times, uh, a lot of crimes that are perpetuated by non-natives can't get prosecuted unless. Mm-hmm. The feds step in, but then the feds have their own guidelines about when they do, and most of the time they don't, which is why crime on reservations is such a huge problem. Mm. So it's not actually us that's making the reservations super squalor. It's other folks coming in and ruining it for everybody else. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so reservations, there are 11 of them in Minnesota. There are four... Yep, there are four uh, Lakota and Dakota reservations in the lower half of Minnesota. Minnesota is historically Dakota land, and like the far, far north is Ojibwe Anishinaabe land. Um, my people, the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe people, uh, very, very long ago, millennia, millennia ago, um, had sort of a Mecca-like immigration from out east to out west. Part of our origin story, part of our historical narrative is we were given a prophecy in the seven fires that uh, we needed to move west to the land where food grows on water and stop when you get Mm. there. And so that food is wild rice. And so wild rice, which is, I feel like is one of the things that's super so heavily associated with Native folks is, oh, wild rice, that's a Native thing. Uh, well, it definitely is. It's specifically an Ojibwe thing. Just, just to be clear, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a lot of... Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a similar origin story in Mexican folklore, too, where, where, where Tenochtitlan started, where what is now Mexico City, right? Like, looking mm-hmm. for this cactus and the snake over a bed of water. They didn't necessarily think about wild rice, but mm-hmm. essentially it was a swamp yeah. where the entire city sits and sort of perpetuated itself. Awesome. See, there's similar origin stories yeah. for different indigenous folks all across so. the world. The more I hear about it, yeah. Yeah. So we have, we stopped where the wild rice grows and that's more up north and some Ojibwe folk trickle down a little bit further south and like Minnesota is a very interesting landscape like if you go slightly north of Minneapolis it's like all woodland and if you mm-hmm. go slightly south it's just like open fields and prairies 
And so that's kind of where that divide is. And that's why there's a huge mix of different indigenous nations in Minneapolis. We also have mm-hmm. Menominee, Ho-Chunk. Because of, of the ecology. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Ecology and just historical lands of what people lived here. It wasn't like clear divided borders, but this is where we are right now is Dakota land. Mm-hmm. And so if we go about even an hour north, it's more Ojibwe land. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, Indian relocation was a thing. Lots of folks are down here. I myself grew up between Duluth in Minneapolis. I like to say that I was raised in Duluth and grew up in Southside. I think that makes the most sense. <laughs> What's Duluth like? I, so when I went there, when I went up there, people kept uh, saying it was the San Francisco of the Midwest or of Minnesota. And yeah, that's a dream. It was. It was a little they strange. Can... It was a little strange to hear that because I'm from California and I lived and spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. Yeah, they wish. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, no, I. Know. What I call Duluth is the Florida for <laughs> cis gay men. <laughs> White cis gay men. Right, That's what it is. Please. <laughs> Describe it further. Yeah. I'm going to take a sip of my water real <laughs> quick here before I get into that one. <laughs> do what you got to do. What flavor is that? What's the, what you got today? Lime. Nice. It's what we had around here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so Duluth is white, which is weird because Duluth is a central spot of a lot of different Ojibwe nations up mm-hmm. north. Um, so why it's so white? Nobody knows. Oh, God, Duluth is such a weird place. Mining, shipping, I don't know. Yeah, sex trafficking. Sex well, trafficking. Well, tidbit, that's actually what I do specifically. I work to prevent and do intervention work in the sex trafficking of Native folks in Minnesota under a safe harbors law, and I'll tell more about that in a bit. Let's do that, yeah. Um, but yeah, so growing up in Duluth, let's put it this way, and I, I'm only going to say this word out of context of what my friends called me and what I dealt with on a daily basis, but my friends thought it was okay and affectionately called me prairie nigger growing up. Okay. Yeah. So um, they thought it was funny to to call me a derogatory slur for most of middle school and most because of Because of your Native American heritage? Yes. And I was the only uh, visibly Native person at my high school. Um, I lived in what was called the cake eater part of town, which never made sense to me. Like, you're more middle class, ergo you eat cake. I don't get it. My mom was a single mom. We happened to get a really good deal on a house. We lived in the neighborhood that had the definitely the more upper and upper middle class kids there. And so you're exposed to more hostility, though. So much more hostility. Then if you were in a working class community potentially, or oh, it would be better. I, 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 I feel very privileged in the way I grew up, and I thank my mom for keeping me as safe as possible in different ways that she could, and for giving me what honestly probably was the best education I could have gotten in Duluth. Um, However, it came at like a great expense to me. Um, I've struggled with personal identity, cultural identity. I didn't feel comfortable coming out as queer to myself even for a long time, um, let alone even in a community up there. And it was just very weird existing as a very tall, plus size, (laughs) darker skinned native queer person (laughs) and at this insanely white, bizarre school um, that I eventually dropped out of. And... My, just too much. It was way too much. So day-to-day shit, just like day-to-day. Oh, day-to-day, it was just such yeah. bullshit. Day-to-day, I got pushed down the stairs and got called an emo faggot and then kicked the next second and told mm. to uh, go burn some wagons. <laughs> yeah. But there was, like, there was there was no... Yeah, I was... Oh, God, I could listen... Let's see. I was called wagon burner, prairie nigger, timber nigger. That was a fun one for a while. I'm like, I don't know. Um... And these are these Pocahontas. are common these are common slander terms. Yep. It's just like what people say on a regular basis. Yep. I mean, people... forgive my ignorance. I just don't. No, no, that's, that's more of a, a yep out of exhaustion. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah, yeah. I'm just like now thinking like, oh yeah, high school sucked. <laughs> high school was the worst. I mean, it was like yeah, just for where, where I grew up, like the conf- we it was it was like ninety percent Latino, and the conflict was between first, second generation Latino kids and recent immigrants, right? So they would call it, you know, they would sometimes call them wet back and different things. Yeah, well, when I was but, in high school, the big thing was super popular was, like, the emo and scene kids and all that stuff and whatnot. And so, that? Oh, God. You think of, like, that, that 
2007 screamo bands or those kids that were like really really way too tight skinny jeans way (laughs) too low with like the black swoopy haircut okay all right yeah the black swoopy hair just google scene kids it's scene kids horrifying i'm not gonna google that but i'll take your word for it it's it's embarrassing (laughs) it's honestly embarrassing so why were they compelled to call you that uh, cause I happen to, my hair right now is kind of the lilac color, but, um, I happen to have super, super dark hair and I chopped it off really short and then I just hung out with the only people that would accept me and then ergo by the rest of everyone uh. else I got grouped in as this like little, little emo wagon burner. I'm like, wow, what don't you hate me they for? They just kept stacking it on. So you're yeah. just you're just trying to find your groove, and that was the only space you can go to because there are there were no other. Yep, there were no native folks at my school. No native folks. Nope. Damn. And there weren't a whole lot of native folks that were even consistently in school in Duluth because, I mean, let's let's. So you're getting pushed out. I mean, that's what's happening. Yeah, we're getting we're getting pushed out, or else the kids that are there have really unstable homes. Um, more likely than not, are in foster care or have experienced in the foster at some care. Level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was this very uh, bizarre existence of being native in Duluth where no matter what you're doing, you can't win. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like at the minimum you had a stable home. I had a very stable home. Uh, My mom, bless her heart, she she did the best she could to raise me as close to my culture as possible. Uh, But for both personal and traumatic reasons uh there were i kind of had to stay away from my family for a while and i had a really hard time going to any ceremony or any powwow Mm. so my mom just continued to tell me the stories uh, of my people of my family that she knew until i was ready to kind of start exploring that part of my side as well or that part of my history that part of my existence and so I've never identified as anything but native, as anything but indigenous, but having that cultural tie has been difficult because sure. growing up in Duluth sucked. Sure. And experiencing like the daily traumatic existence of being native in Duluth sucked. Uh, great example of this, the weatherman, like Duluth is small, there's like the weatherman up there. Yeah, these, they're local celebrities in these yeah. towns. Oh yeah, yeah, local it's celebrity. It's great. But the local weatherman on Twitter I think I was probably 18 or I think I was 19 when this happened. Yeah, I was in college, but yeah, I was 19 when this happened. But there's this huge scandal where um, a native person uh, was drunk and like sat down in his yard in the summer or uh-huh. something like that. And the man took a picture of it and said, "These dogs out here should be executed." Fuck. Yeah. Straight up, just not verbatim. That's what he said. Yep. Jesus. Yep. So we're called dogs too. I've been called dog many times. There's only two things that ever get asked, well, how much are you in terms of like percentage of identity and that's dogs and native folks and that's not accidental. Right. Like tribal enrollment is based on uh, a colonialistic tool of existence and that's blood quantum. I really hate blood quantum. I think it's a totally fucked way to measure how native you are. Uh, like I have like I know my blood quantum and it doesn't make sense to me how you could even get some sort of fractal percentage like I have but I also know that it's not correct because my I know down the line I have family that lied about their blood quantum Mm. just so they could be considered U.S. citizens Mm. that's right folks we weren't considered U.S. citizens fully until something like 1964 or something like that Mm. that was a fun one (laughs) little tidbit (laughs) thanks <laughs> so you drop out of high school, you get pushed out. You pushed out of high school. Yeah, I got pushed out. I dropped out of the high school I went to, and I homeschooled myself for the rest of the year. And at the end of that year, my mom and I moved down to Minneapolis. She took a job down here, mm-hmm. and she she wouldn't have moved if I wouldn't have been okay with it. But I was like, yes, please, for the love right. of God, get me the hell out of here. And so we moved down here, and then I eventually um, graduated. I graduated on time. Woo. But it was a miracle that I did. But I went to St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Arts, and that school saved my life. What it was your was, medium? I did musical theater. Okay. Yeah. You're a theater kid? Oh, total theater kid. <laughs> Everything makes so much more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a theater there. But that was the first school I went to that had very uh, much so like celebrated, openly queer brown folks there. And mm. I'm like, thank God, this is great. So it wasn't just like wasn't just like an aesthetic thing they actually there was a population that very much like, so. speak to your experience oh it was beautiful okay. i was still the only native person there but 
Um, it was wonderful. I felt I felt at home there, and I, I don't think I would have completed high school or anything at all if I wouldn't have gone there. Mm. Super small class sizes. I'm going to just explore different parts of everything I wanted to do, and then I had a couple of really great teachers there that helped me get into college. College sucked, but hey, I made it through. I said that with an eye twitch to those listening. Um, but yeah, so that's Well, and I think uh, if you're if you had a a life a childhood of a lot of tension and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of angst, not, not not angst, but like tension and bigotry, right? Well, uh, trauma. Trauma. It sounds like being in finding a medium was could have been important or was it important to you for just to just try to find your voice and find your location? It was important. It gave me an outlet to let out my crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Or just start processing or something. Yeah, it was. There was definitely... um, I think the first time I ever started kind of fully realizing the trauma I experienced just from existing Mm. and... uh, Yeah, let alone the historical experience. Yeah, any of that stuff was actually... I think I was... I don't remember if I was a sophomore or junior in college, but I took a course called Women in the Criminal Justice System. It was a conflict studies course. And there was a... The whole, the whole course was centered around um, understanding how totally fucked the prison industrial mm-hmm. complex is and how women, and specifically women of color, and even more so trans women of color, mm-hmm. are uh, set up from birth to go into these private prison systems and just to make money. Yeah. And so I was uh, reading a chapter in the book that was specifically about Native women, the Native experience, about different statistics, percentages, studies, and whatnot. And when I got to the end of the chapter, I was sitting in class and I kind of had this like super bad panic attack because I'm sitting there looking at this and like I fit like every single criteria mm-hmm. of someone that, that mm-hmm. should be in prison for one thing or another. And it didn't make sense to me why I wasn't. And I'm, I still don't really understand mm. why, but I, I seriously think it was because I was raised by my white mom. And she, my mom is a social worker. She's been one for almost 30 years. Um, she is now currently working down in Arizona to help bring uh, undocumented students into the social work program and help them go through the process of like getting a green card. Yeah. Like yeah. So she she's like low key coyote status and I love her. <laughs> but, still um, up there, yeah. Oh, she's great. But so she but she worked up in Duluth for right. forever and worked in the Native community up there as well. And um, but I think that was it is that my mom was a social worker and she made a lot of mistakes, but she also kept me safe and she kept me as grounded as I possibly could and instilled some sort of fear of God in me of like not religious, but like fear of her of like if I if I ever did anything bad or if I got any <laughs> sort of trouble, like I knew that like all hell would come down. Yeah. And so it was just that that one piece there that like my I seriously think it was just my mom. For so like, that was of your mother staying with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like when I still look at all these statistics that like I, I still think I'm like something should have happened. Somewhere down the line. Yeah. Like, I still can't go back home to Duluth to go see family up there without, like, every time I go up, I'm pulled over for something. It's totally ridiculous the things I get pulled Straight over up. for. Yeah. Like, the most recent time up there, I got pulled over, and they made me do a sobriety test. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, a chronic illness, a genetic disease that makes all my joints super unstable. So I physically can't walk in a straight line on mm. like or like balance on one foot without wobbling <laughs> super bad. And so I walk Shit. like I'm drunk all the time. Right. And so that doesn't like doesn't really help either. <laughs> Stereotypes are a thing. Uh, but yeah, so the the officer was giving me a really hard time about like didn't believe me that I was that I was sober. I'm like, can you just give me a breathalyzer? And he's just like, well, no, let's do the test first. I'm like, I want to go home. Yeah. And so like, no, maybe do that. And of course, my anxiety goes up, the panic goes up, my body starts shaking more. And he doesn't believe me. He finally gives me a breathalyzer, and I blow it clear. And he's like, well, it must be a fluke. I'm like, then do it again. Yeah. Like you're not, I'm like, why did you pull me over in the first place? And he said he couldn't quite read my license plate right. That's bullshit. Yeah. My car was muddy, not that muddy. Yeah. If you can't read my license plate, you shouldn't be driving. Well, everyone's cars are fucked up in the winter. Yeah. Or all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you were saying about uh, reading these textbooks in college, and I think for a lot of communities of color, like, there's so much, especially like in sociology, anthropology, if it's, if it's urban-oriented, there's just a constant examination of us. I remember feeling that same anxiety in yeah. college too, 
and and sitting there thinking, when are we going to study white people? When are we going to study suburbs? When are we going to study all the fucked up shit that happens there? And it doesn't happen. Like it's just like constantly seeing myself reflected in the materials, just extremely uncomfortable, and also having that realization mm-hmm. that we're a numerical anomaly. That fact that we just got through college. The fact that I'm standing here at almost twenty five without a child, never been married, never actually been in jail, um, never actually been in the foster care system either as far as I can remember. Uh, all of the stuff that I have a that I have an undergraduate degree and I am pursuing a graduate degree, mm-hmm. I am a statistical anomaly. Yeah. The fact that I'm alive here is that yeah. I'm a statistical anomaly. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't make sense. And so I try to pursue everything I do with the understanding that somehow, some way, I'm here. I have my I have my ancestors with me walking every step of the way. And there's some purpose. I have to believe that because, again, there's no reason why I should have my own corner office in a cozy building. <laughs> <laughs> so... And I, and I think I think for me at least it doesn't it doesn't it isn't necessarily pressure but it's always that recognition and I do have a jail record and I was in jail for a while so mm-hmm. like I, I still couldn't like not fulfill that part of it yeah know? I mean I've been detained I think any any organizer who's been on the front line has sure. a very real risk of being detained but um, I've never been booked <laughs> so there's that <laughs> <laughs> I have received threatening letters for different things but I've never been booked yeah. I don't have a record other than I have a really weird parking ordinance run in my house and have a crap ton of parking t- tickets from it. So that's that's all I got. When I was in jail, there was a lot of people with like accumulated parking tickets in Los Angeles. This is like several thousand dollars, and then you go for a couple days. Yeah. It all goes away. Oh, I want to do that. I want to pay my parking tickets. I'm up to like I don't think it's a bad I don't think right it's now. a bad strategy. It's not. I'm like, can you just like let me stay here overnight? Yeah, hang out for a day. Give me some bologna sandwiches and Yeah, like I'd rather night. disconnect from social media anyways. This is a reward. <laughs> <laughs> it was very monastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I just like I mean think yeah, I just hadn't thought about that in a long time. Yeah, the stranger was just to be examined all the fucking time. All the time. All the and time. there's this weird piece of being native in academia as well where my history is just like completely erased. It's not known. It's not talked yeah. about. Like my professors don't know my own shit. And I had this horrible professor. And I'm going to name the bitch. Her name is Narith Zamora. She's a piece of shit. What <laughs> school is this? Hamlin University. Narith Zamora is still there. She is an Italian national raised in Israel. Um, like it was, she has dual or tri citizenship of some sort. She identifies as Israeli, mm. and this is important down the line. <laughs> um, but she she is a terrible, terrible person. So the first experience I ever had with her was when I was working as a new student mentor. I'm those like one of those annoying folks that led all the freshmen through orientation and hung out in classes for the first semester. Yeah, it was that person. You did that? Yeah. <laughs> what motivated the decision to do that? Uh, because I hated... Because private schools are hard. Yeah, man. I hated like, my new student mentor Jesus. so much that I wanted to be better than she was. But it's, but it's like... Because I went to a private school too, and we when we do stuff like that, if you're an ARIA or whatever, you put your face in front of a lot of white people. And it's in a lot of tend to be privileged white people. Oh, I know. Schools. And I say fuck a lot. I was really delightful. <laughs> I was really, really, really delightful. But hey, they hired me and they knew me. I mean, and jobs, whatever. Like, yeah. Jesus. God, they didn't pay me enough, anywhere enough for all the bullshit. Yeah. Um, I digress. But yeah, so Narice, um, I heard, I had like my own designated group of students, but what ended up happening was like all of the little misfits from all the different groups came to me. So I was like mother goose for all the weird kids. Right. Mostly like the like the artsy queer brown kids came to me That's under good. my wing. So Cute. it was good. Yeah. I liked them. Yeah. I liked them. Um, so you gave them a little bit of a home. It was nice. good. But yeah, so there was one uh, Muslim girl that wore the hijab. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hamlin has a lot of Muslim students there. And they're, they're kind of... Is there a particular reason for that? Uh, no. I think just by word of mouth, just recruitment. It's historically been like a really safe open school there's a lot of transgender students mm. a lot of trans spectrum mm. students there and a lot of muslim students mm. just happens to be that just way like chain migration people just i have no clue one person goes or anyone else word of mouth yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so there is one muslim student that i heard um that was in narith zamora's uh was it the first year seminar course mm-hmm. And she was told that she had to take, by Zamora, that she had to take her hijab off in class because it was too oppressive for the professor to look at. What the fuck? Yeah. Sorry I keep asking you to, like, like, I just, it's hard to, like, 
hear this shit sometimes. I'm yeah, just like, it's awful. Really it's I don't. I don't mean to doubt you. It's just like I have to hear it again. Just. To, I don't believe her. You know I'm like, I mean? I'm like, like, no, you're bullshitting me. And I had a conversation with Zamora, and she's just like, I don't need that stuff in front of me. It's too traumatic for oh me. I'm like, what? I'm what like, was she teaching? What was the content? I have no... She teaches history, so something historical, I'm sure. I don't know what the class was, but oh. I was I'm sure like, she didn't, like, elaborate on what the basis of her trauma she, was, right? Like, she just wrote me off. And then... But she... she All she said was, was, like, I'm Israeli. I'm Israeli. It's too traumatic for me to look at. Like, that's all, that's all she said. So I'm like, okay. And why this is traumatic to me? Like, what... Yeah, and there was a there was a pro Palestine demonstration at my school, and she was there screaming at the students the whole time. I'm like, wow, you, oh, she's so frustrating, so so wonderfully racist. So then I had to deal with this bitch. Uh, mm. She was the last hurdle I had to go through before graduation. She taught my the one capstone class I could take, and like that's a problem at Hamlin. There was only one I could take, but it's a small school. It's like twelve hundred students mm-hmm. in the undergrad body. It's really little. So I took it, and it was cultural responses to civil war, and arguably, and I went to school for history. So arguably, uh, by all historical accounts, the civil rights movement was a civil war. Mm. There's no, there's no question about that. It's a very easy argument. So I wanted to do artwork and uh, written pieces and films and PSAs, uh, but d- kind of centered around the American Indian movement in response to the civil rights movement. And so when I proposed my thesis to her, to Narith, she said, she laughed at me and she said, the civil, uh, civil rights movement, who was that a war against? I'm like, literally everyone if you weren't a straight white male yeah straight white christian male and she's like laughed at me she's like oh no you're just you're you're i'm not gonna okay that you're just being way too sensitive about that mike sensitive i'm like wow are you kidding me i'm just like i'm like this is really important to me that like i i have some sort of i all of my studies to this point were focused around my culture i basically tailored my degree into contemporary cultural studies and she, and then she laughed at me again, and she said, Ariana, you kind of need to get over this stuff. I mean, Native history just doesn't really matter anymore. She fucking, what? Yeah. This bitch. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, so that was, that was really unbelievably traumatic to deal with. It doesn't matter anymore. Like, what, what, what thinking, like, supports that? Yeah, know? keep like, in mind, this was the same year that... Minnesota finally gave recognition to the Dakota, <laughs> to the Dakota 38 to the 38 um, Dakota people that were that were executed mm. mass executed by order of Abraham Lincoln right. at Fort Snelling. Right. Uh, Fort Snelling was also the inspiration for the concentration camps in uh, Nazi Germany, and there's do- there's well written documentation about mm. that. And so like Minnesota has finally been giving recognition of that, and this was the year they started doing that. And I'm like. Were, were you not at the big, like, faculty training, like, a couple months ago that was mandatory around this stuff? Like, of course Native history matters. You're on Dakota land. You have an Ojibwe woman in your class. Like, of course it matters. As yeah. long as you have a student that it matters to, it matters. Even if it, even if you don't have a student right, in your class that it matters to, it still matters. You, if you're teaching Minnesota history, if you're teaching any history, yeah. and you're talking about American history, you need to be talking about the genocide of the land that you're sure. on. Uh, and so it's just. All the, I mean, it's all of the Americas. Yeah. yeah. So she sucked. <laughs> yeah, and she just. Well, how'd you finish your project? Um, oh, <laughs> so I got my little piece of sweet, sweet, petty, petty revenge against her. <laughs> And I did Palestinian artwork to the Palestinian-Israeli <laughs> conflict. <laughs> and she was forced to accept it. She couldn't say no just because she hated me. Uh-huh. But um, I, I got a B-minus on that project. I was kind of surprised. I, like, yeah. half-assed it. It was great. <laughs> but I graduated, and I got out of there. But, uh, yeah, that was fantastic to do that. <laughs> I'm like, well, if you're not going to let me do the thing I want, I'm going to do the thing you hate. <laughs> I think that's fair. Some poetic justice there. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I hate her. She also had really bad breath. Really, really, like her, <laughs> like dead, else? dead tonsil breath. I hate her. I just need to get that off my that's chest. That's good. I like that. I appreciate that. <laughs> this podcast is getting heavy. That's good. Hey. <laughs> I never know where these things are going to go. That's yeah. that's definitely not a direction we've ever taken. Oh, I have so much to say. That's exciting. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your work. 
Yeah, so I work under a law in Minnesota called Safe Harbors. It's been enacted for about two years now, or it was passed in 2013, fully enacted in 2014. I've been here for a full year now. Um, Safe Harbors uh, essentially boil down to it, it decriminalizes uh, prostitution for youth, Mm -hmm. for those under the age of 18. And it also creates a services model so that when folks are dealing with sexual exploitation or being prostituted, instead of being immediately punished for that, they're going to receive services to kind of identify those needs. So a good number to kind of go by to understand how much of a problem this is, um, uh, the native population in Minneapolis is something like less than one percent like we're like of the overall population yeah we're like 0.8 of like the twin cities metro or something like that we make up 76 percent of juvenile trafficking Mm -hmm. arrests Mm -hmm. and so it's a significant problem in our community and the things that lead to the and i i the language i use is sexually exploited youth or trafficked youth or prostituted individuals Mm -hmm. i believe that there are people out there that are definitely sex workers by choice Mm -hmm. um that that is their their own consenting decision, whatever, I don't care. But uh, a lot of times there are folks out there that are manipulated into this, that are brought into this sort of work because there is a very real raw need for survival there, Mm -hmm. of whether it be cash assistance, whether it be um, clothes or food or housing. Um, So that's why I kind of fight and I'm involved in all these different projects I'm involved in. I think that there needs to be a minimum wage, there needs to be rent-controlled housing, there needs to be much, much, much more um, affordable housing all over the city here, there needs to be accountability from landlords, There needs gentrification needs to stop because it's pushing, uh, pushing out families that have been here for years and years and years and they don't know where to go now and so you kind of have to just hope for the best. Mm. And so most of most of my youth that uh, co- that I come across that are facing ex or sexual exploitation or are being just like straight up prostituted or trafficked and here locally locally yeah okay. yep yep um, I mean I, I see youth from all over the state but the youth I specifically work with are usually within a mile radius of me here so the stuff I'm seeing them happen is that they it's like this, a symptom of growing up poor when you have money put in front of you and you say all you have to do is something you're already doing anyways. Like, you're going to kind of want to say yes, but that's not healthy. That's not safe. It's not, and it leads very, very quickly into having a pimp that kind of controls your whole life or is threatening your family, your loved ones, your yeah. pets. We see that happen a lot, threatening your pets, their little brothers or sisters or stuff like that. Uh, so it's my my youth want nice shiny new things and that shouldn't be unachievable for them in any other circumstance or else my youth are the sole breadwinners of their household and suddenly can't work or they're not old enough to work yeah. um, it's responding to a lot of pressure yeah a lot of a lot of societal and social pressure yeah. just to get help and so um, and Oftentimes, I will see parents and grandparents and guardians trafficking mm. and exploiting their youth uh, to make rent, to buy drugs. Um, so we have we have a heroin epidemic, and that needs to be addressed. We need more treatment. We need more culturally specific treatment facilities. We need less limitations and restrictions on who can go and receive help at these treatment facilities. So that needs to change on a funding level. Uh, trying to do grant reporting for grants that we can receive is really difficult because these funders don't understand that sometimes a measurement of success is that nobody died. Yeah. And so this, so that was something that MIWRC, the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, recently uh, kind of got into a tizzy about with some of our grant funders was that they were saying, like, well, you're not doing enough programming, you're not doing enough programming, we're not seeing the numbers here, we're not seeing, where are these big, huge success stories? We're like, this is the first winter in probably 20 years that none of our clients died. That's a win. Yeah, it's, it's much starker than a middle-class sort of nonprofit devoted to, like, arts, yeah. whatever, and you can count how many people made a painting or some shit. Yeah. Like, it's not, the no, scale isn't made for this. Yeah, I'm like, nobody died. Yeah. And I might not hear from my girls for a month, three months, but if I still hear from them in the end, I am happy. If I see them getting on the bus when I'm driving around my neighborhood here because I live in the neighborhood too, I'm happy. What would be the sort of deaths that that you'd have Um, were happening? Heroin, or well, just drug abuse in general, overdose, and domestic violence. 
um, a lot of a lot of domestic violence deaths um, or complications from domestic violence, and it's it's a, again a huge problem. Of also, there's this really unhealthy notion of what masculinity is like in our communities. It's a it's a colonized version of you need to be tough, you need to control mm-hmm. your woman, your woman needs to be this, your woman needs to be that, versus you need to be this, you need to be that, you need to address this stuff. Um, the word for warrior in my language is ogichida, um, ogichi, kwe for women, oh, what's the word for men? I don't recall, but ogichida is just the general term for warrior, and there's kind of been a struggle to teach our young men that a warrior doesn't mean you need to be aggressive, mm-hmm. that you doesn't need to be violent. A warrior to us means that you protect and you serve and you tr- you take care of those in the community for you. And then you step up to the plate when things get tough. And that's not what, that is not what's happening. And so there's two gangs here, um, the Native Gangster Disciples and the Native Mob that um, they're small, but they're violent. They're violent as hell. And for both of them, from what we know, their part of their initiation process is to rape or traffic a woman. And that's been a big problem. Now, there's mm. been a decline in that. We don't know why. We have no clue why, mm. uh, why there's been a decline in that in Minneapolis, at least. So that's concerning. But Why concerning? Because you would rather know why there's a decline than not yeah. know. Like, yeah, it's a good thing that we're seeing less of this, but why? Because that means there's a shift, and it's yeah. unclear where the, where the shift is going. Yeah, if there's a shift in leadership, a, lift in di- right. a shift in dynamics, power, we don't know. Or some other sort of... Yeah. There's, there's still going to be initiating, there's still going to be trafficking yeah. something. Yeah. So when, yeah. I'm, when I'm talking about healing in my community, when I'm talking about doing this anti-trafficking work, I can't just be going out to the street just talking to my youth because my youth know what's going on. It's the whole families that need help. It's the cultural revitalization that needs to happen. We need to have more support for our families from the get-go. There needs to be less restrictions on who can get cash assistance from the county or how much cash assistance you can really get. Uh, there just needs to be a lot more change. Yeah. And overall, looking at the bigger picture, there needs to be a livable wage. There needs right. to be affordable right. health care. These needs are still to structural be, issues. Yeah, all, all structural. And this frankly, is the decline of the welfare state under Bill Clinton. This is mm-hmm. no no living wages. And so, so self-connected. And that's why yeah. I have a lot of leeway at my agency. And I love how supportive my agency is of me to do all of these different um, social movements, social change And to speak in those terms. Yeah. Yeah, so because it's all connected, it's all directly Absolutely. related to the exploitation and trafficking of Native people. It's it's horrifying. It's horrifying what's happening to us. It's it's a modern. It's part of our modern genocide. One one of my first podcasts three years ago did a they put together a report around trafficking to mining camps for Native American women being trafficked in mining camps. Mm-hmm. Is that is that also part of the sort of scope of work that you're thinking about? Yeah, it's all connected because. Um, lucrative money yeah. it's seriously seriously big money and Good like gosh. frankly i remember i remember being groomed when i was younger and mm. again summer with my mom instilling that insane fear in me of just being this what i would self-describe as a goody two-shoes kid i didn't get into it i don't know how but i remember i remember men coming up to me or like people coming up to me and just saying like how cute how pretty i was how there's this party later how we should get like get together how i should meet his friends shit like that and it wasn't one person it was a bunch of different people that this happened with when i was younger that's how it started yeah that's that's, that's often how it starts is when you are 13 14 15 years old it feels pretty fucking good to right. have someone older than you uh, even significantly older, hit on you, call you beautiful, call you pretty, that stuff like that. Yeah, and everything yeah. else is really dislocated. Yeah, and when I'm looking back at like all of the trauma I was experiencing in middle and high school of just around my identity existence and having someone tell me that I was beautiful, whereas yeah. I'm going to school and being called wagon burner, that felt pretty good. Yeah, and it's it's hard. I mean, the the mo- the average age of entry into trafficking for Native youth is twelve. Mm. And that's, again, not an accident. It's it's this very, very vulnerable age. Yeah. So there's all these these different pieces that come to play with that. And uh, circling back to what I said about Duluth earlier, uh, about it being a big sex trafficking area, it's like Duluth and New Orleans are like the two uh, harbor ports where Mm -hmm. this happens a lot because you have the ships come in, uh, we so nationally, have, that's 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 the focus. That's those are the big two big areas. Yes, and so in Duluth, um, overall Minnesota is thirteenth in the country for sex trafficking mm-hmm. or human trafficking overall. I think it's specifically sex trafficking, uh, but Duluth 
is uh, has a very very high problem specifically with trafficked native women because they are a, a like a straight up harbor pipeline to Canada where there is also a huge epidemic with missing and murdered indigenous women mm-hmm. with the uh, Canadian government just turning a blind eye to when this happens it's horrible it's horrible how this is happening uh, right now there's something like 4000 missing and murdered indigenous women that have like no open cases and no follow up and it's that's a significant chunk of our native women. And at least in Canada, is it is it due to a lack of recognition and wanting to identify the problem, or just straight negligence and bigotry? Both. Yeah. Both. Right, sure. It's also kind of this good riddance attitude of kill the Indian, save the man. Right. Yeah. And so there's... It's more, more disposable. Yeah. Yeah. And so in Duluth, though, um, women and youth will be trafficked and brought onto the ships to service the men on the ships. And then... They will be moved from the ships to the to the pipeline fields in North Dakota. So it really is like a straight, direct, literal pipeline to and from the from Canada to the harbor, to North Dakota, South Dakota. Uh, so it's been awesome that the pipelines are kind of booming or kind of busting now after yeah. the big boom and yeah. things are calming down there. Uh, but now we native folks in particular are pushing really really hard against having the keystone xl Enbridge pipeline all these different oil pipelines that want to bring tar sands from canada down through minnesota here for a couple reasons right. one because that does bring pipeline human trafficking inevitably uh two pipelines always leak they're gonna yeah. leak at some point sure. in time and that leakage causes irreparable damage to uh, the land around it three our our existence, our sovereignty, and our our justice is directly tied to our environment and to our food source, and our main source of food on Native communities, and a lot of people's main source of income is through wild rice. And so when the wild rice patties are damaged, when those lakes are damaged, when that water is damaged, um, our livelihood, our lives are damaged. It's not just like, oh, well, we can't swim in the lake anymore. It's like, no, we can't eat. We can't yeah. feed our families. We can't make money. We can't have our ceremonies. And so it hinders on our religious freedom. It hinders on our civil rights. It hinders on our sovereignty. Uh, but it also takes our women and children away from us. And trafficking doesn't happen just to women and children. I am just going to say it that way because that's the population. I work with more yeah. um, happens to everyone and we're working to help uh, those that identify as men and males to feel comfortable coming out and telling us their stories of exploitation and trafficking but again as part of dismantling that really unhealthy idea mm-hmm. of western masculinity and all that yeah and certainly these stories aren't part of the narrative around the opposition to these pipelines right what do you mean the stories that you're describing around the effect of Native American communities at various levels yeah, I mean, the pipelines can't be here for so many reasons, but yeah. that's my big fight is like, well, it's going to cause more trafficking. Yeah. <laughs> that's the bottom line. It's, gonna, it's going to ruin our land more than it already has been. It's going to hinder on our sovereign rights as indigenous people, and it's going to inevitably cause a huge, huge spike of trafficking of native peoples. Also, we have the new U.S. Bank Stadium here, and we have the Super Bowl coming here, Yeah, and that scares the hell yeah. out of me. That fucking terrifies me. And so we, the Minnesota State Legislature, is already preemptively planning about $5 million extra in funding um, just to kind of work on efforts that are going to be directly related to the trafficking that will inevitably happen with a Super Bowl coming here. Yeah, I think the, in the first, this is the first Super Bowl I've seen that they, there was an active conversation, albeit small, around trafficking, and I think... It's something that people just don't talk about, the sort of levels of trafficking that happen around major sporting events. Yeah. Well, we need to name it, and I'm going to force them to. I am. I have enough power in my position that I have the ability to go, talk, to go meet with state legislators and say, name your shit. Name yeah. it. And there needs to be accountability. And also now, it made me really, really happy at the caucuses that happened just this past Tuesday on Super Tuesday that a lot of different precincts passed resolutions Mm -hmm. to address different issues with the stadium. And there were friendly amendments made all across the board about we need to address um, the prevention of trafficking around the Super Bowl. So 
Ooh, I don't know if it'll get anywhere, but people are talking about it, naming it. Yeah. And I think the conversation is certainly elevated. And that's yeah, and I think I think that's super important own. too. Is like when you have a mysterious ache in your body, you have this pain in your leg forever, 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 forever. You kind of learn to live with it, but once you finally figure out what's causing that yeah. pain, what's naming it, you once can start treating it, and yeah. then you feel better. And I'm treating trafficking the same way. It's like it's been here since first contact. Uh, it's been here for way too long and we need to name it so we can start fixing it and we have to remove the shame around it as well because it's not shameful that you've experienced any sort of trauma or crime it's shameful that people have perpetuated it and that there's still a need yeah. and so again though um i i personally i do not speak for my agency with this i do not know if we have official agency stance but i personally support the full decriminalization of sex traffic or not sex trafficking i support the full <laughs> decriminalization of sex work and prostitution overall because i think that there are people out there that do choose to do this it is their choice and they deserve equal protection under the law i mean it's your body your choice to the ultimate point and so we can't take consent away and punish people for it because they're choosing to do something that people are uncomfortable with. Well, and I guess to the services, if they choose, they step out of that line of work as well. Yeah, and they should else. have that freedom to choose right. what they want to do. But Not again, on it. yeah, and there should, but there again, there should be other things in place where if people feel like that's their only option, it really shouldn't be their only option. Yeah. So we need to kind of address the societal systemic problems: living wage, housing, rent, food, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. I'm just existing. It shouldn't shouldn't be this fucked. Yeah. Um, our hours are almost up. Uh, is there anything else you want to offer? Uh, yeah, just a little plug in here. There's been a much broader conversation happening around right now, um, solidarity with indigenous folks and other movements in general. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and pain and confusion circulating around. And it's been really hard to see. It's been really hard to experience that, to deal with it. Folks have made it personal with me, and that sucks. What, what are you referring to? Um, I'm not going to get into specifics because I don't want to cause more of a shitstorm than there's already been, but I just sure. want to address this on a wider scale of indigenous people are out here fighting for our own problems and our different issues, but we need help. We need resources. We need physical bodies with us, and we need folks to help us do the work because we are fucking tired. And so criticisms I have seen of, of indigenous folks in, in fighting for our struggles is, well, you just want you just want us to do the work for you, or you just want to ride off our coattails, or mm. why aren't you doing it um, mm. already? Well, we are. We literally are. But there's just also literally less of us. We're significantly less visible because genocide did a hell of a number on my people. Um, all across the board, it did a hell of a number. And so, yeah, we're gonna get looked over by the government, we're gonna get looked over by other large national movements, um, by the movement, capital T, capital M overall, because there's, there's simply less of us. So I beg of listeners of this to stop perpetuating native erasure and get out and read something. I highly suggest reading articles and sources from the Indian Country Today Media Network, um, also Last Real Indians. I would take both of those kind of with a grain of salt and realize that there is going to be journalistic bias with both of those yeah, pages. Yeah, context, but, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, but that's where we're talking about some of these big indigenous struggles here. And it is not my intention ever to ride on the coattails of someone else's movement. I think I personally don't support the name Native Lives Matter because I does think that co-ops from the movement Black Lives Matter. I had, I've had i had a lot of conversations with the leadership and the Native Lives Matter movement with them of like, you need to change this. They won't. They have their reasons why. I completely disagree with them, but I think that the need for it is super, super real. Because uh, when you break it down, not by numbers, but by statistics, by ratio, uh, we are the group that is most likely to experience police brutality yeah. and murder in general. Like, you name it, we're there. It's not a, it's not a pissing contest. It's not a Prussian Olympics. Right. It is... It's the real numbers behind the persecution. Yeah, it's, yeah. it is fact. And our and other indigenous folks in other communities of color, like, we're not at war with each other. We need to be fighting against the common idea of white supremacy and that, that is the common enemy that's driving the wedge between us. They want us to be fighting with each other for the last breadcrumbs. Now, we don't even have breadcrumbs. We don't even have the scent right. of breadcrumbs in front of our table anymore. We're trying to put stuff on the table and grab what we can around us, and there's just not enough. So I, I ask people for help. I ask people to 
try to educate themselves. Start out with articles. Um, Bernie Sanders just hired a new Native Advisory uh, Council person. Her name is Tara Houska, H-O-U-S-K-A. And she has done a lot of writing, a lot of interviews about different work, and I recommend looking up some interviews with her. Uh, but we're, we're dying here, and we, we are advocating for ourselves, but there's just not enough of us. Yeah. Um, in the Minneapolis area, I could name dozens and dozens and dozens of different organizers, probably hundreds of organizers in different communities. I can name five from the indigenous community. That's it. I'm not talking about youth workers. I'm talking about like greater, large project organizers. There's probably five of us, yeah. and that's a problem. Yeah. That there's only five of us doing the work that hunters need to be doing. So we need help. And listen, <laughs> please listen. Well, I'll make sure to post those links too, so people can awesome. navigate that. And so if this is your, I think I think it's the takeaway for me. If this is your first step in trying to wrestle with what's happening to Native American communities here. Then there's some clear second steps. Yeah. And keep following that path. Yeah. And folks can feel free to find me on Facebook. All my stuff <laughs> is public. I I treat Facebook almost like a performance piece. I already know <laughs> I already know that the feds are tracking me, so I have nothing to hide. Yeah, there's it, yeah, there's no way to hide from them. If they want to find us, they can find yeah, us. It's they not, already have. You know, like yeah. yeah. It's not. So yeah, folks feel free to find me on there, shoot me a message, say hi. <laughs> so I'm on there. And I am one of those folks that is willing to help others educate themselves. So if you have questions about materials or sources, I am always here. All right. Thanks, Adriana. Yeah. Appreciate it.